Hello, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and today we're talking about different stories reaching different people, going a little deeper and more specific than genre this time, to talk about the story itself. From Christ's letters to the churches in Revelation to your favorite book, we look at why your five-star story is someone else's two-star read. Well, it's been another great week. I'm just sitting in my office here enjoying a cup of tea, and I'm trying not to be too Picardian, but I really latched on to Earl Grey tea. I love the the flavor of the bergamot, or however you pronounce it, and it's just nice. It's a nice, relaxing time in here, bringing this podcast to you and sipping on some tea, talking about Jesus Christ and our walk with him and talking about writing. I hope you've had as much fun as I have these past couple weeks in the writing world for myself. Next thing I wanted to talk to you about working on in planning for book four is the culture keys. There are a couple things that I determined or I wanted to determine and be ready to, to be able to put into the book. Important things of the different cultures of there are four different peoples in this book that you're going to get to run across. And I wanted to establish for myself some kind of major points or major things that if you were to try to understand this culture, what is it you need to know about them, how they think, how they function. And I did that by looking at some key events in their histories, some main attitudes that they had, just kind of overarching attitudes about things, and then kind of got into much finer points on their views on politics, religion, spirituality, their own history, their own future, death, uh, the community, art, things like that. And it ended up being 56 different slots across the four cultures centered around this idea of like, what's, what are some major things that you would need to understand about this culture uh, in order to, to view it? And the thing I wanted to talk about most with you today is this idea that even though there are four different cultures, as I've said, there's two primary ones. The two, two of the three main characters come from these cultures, uh, the Wohan and the Karist. Uh, we've talked about the languages, developing their naming conventions and things like that. Those are the two kind of primary cultures you're going to see the most. The third character is from a culture that is all but extinct. So a lot of the stuff I'm developing for that culture was based in their past, what they used to be, but has now changed significantly, and you'll understand why. Uh, whenever you get to read the book. And then the fourth culture, the last one, there are no main characters for this culture. You're going to see them once, maybe twice throughout the entire book. But I want to do all this world building for it. So even if they're only acting out one scene, two things can happen with this. If they're only in the one scene, they'll still act like their own unique culture. What they choose to say, what they're kind of fears and concerns are and passions and desires that will underlie everything that they say. There, there will be some interactions with the other characters in this one scene they have, or two scenes. I want to make sure that it sounds authentic and that it also sounds, that it sounds different, just like I did with the languages, wanting to make sure they sounded unique to themselves and different from each other. I want to make sure this culture comes across as something very different. The second thing it does for me is it does kind of provide some of that backstory that if I should choose to develop that culture more because there's a lot of history behind these people that I had already established a little bit, but I'm certainly diving in a lot deeper now. If I decide to do anything with that, I already have it. The trick to remember is not to use all of it. And we talked about this, or I talked about this last time. I want to have all this information to call upon if I need it, but always to make sure that the story requires it 
before I go on. So that spreadsheet that I've been developing, Culture Keys, I've called it, is almost done. I've been just flying forward with all this, this planning stuff. I think I'm over 75% done with everything that I need to get done. And again, I have till the middle of March to do it. So I might have to decide whether or not I just start drafting anyway, maybe get a head start on it. So if something happens throughout the year, I'll already be ahead of schedule. That'd be awesome. So let's get into this week's devotion. We're continuing our thematic series of individuality this week and trying to solve the mystery of why your favorite story has received negative reviews. No matter what book you read or that you like, if you go on Goodreads or on Amazon, this has happened. I've read very negative reviews for Lord of the Rings for, I mean, any book that's out there could be your absolute favorite book. And yet there are people giving it one and two stars. And so we'll be looking at that and, you know, why the book you've written that all your friends, family, critique partners, and other reviewers all love and read it again and again is so loathed by those other few who don't realize how awesome your book is. I say that a little facetiously, but you also see by the end why that is in most cases the truth. For the devotion, our passage this week comes from the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible and one of the most misunderstood and confusing. Now, I don't have the time here to try to unconfuse it. That may be for another episode. And we're not even going to be able to look at the whole passage that I have in mind. Instead, I'm drawing two parts from the series of letters to the seven churches, which can be found in Revelation chapters two and three. I encourage you to read the entirety sometime, but then I would encourage you to read the entirety of the Bible at some point. For now, though, we're just going to read over the letters to the churches of Philadelphia and Laodicea, found in chapter three, starting in verse seven, and I'm going to read through verse 20. And it says this, this is Jesus speaking to John. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Now, one of the great failings I see in the church today, at least in the Western church, is the idea that every church should be preaching the same message. Maybe not the identical message, but a similar theme. That if what this church over here says doesn't agree with what your church says, 
It is wrong, possibly heretical, and definitely those listening are likely to be led astray. And yet in these two letters in Revelation, we see very, very different messages, even though the end result is ideally the same. In many of the other churches, Jesus has praise for them at first, if you read through this whole passage in Revelation where he's speaking to the churches. And yet it says, but I have one thing against you, which he then details as well as how to fix it. And yet for Philadelphia, he has nothing but understanding and praise. Here is a small church in a bad place that has nevertheless remained faithful. And because they have kept the command to endure, Christ has promised to keep them from the hour of trial. This is a very, very different message than the letter to Laodicea. For them, he has nothing but rebuke, condemning them because they are neither hot nor cold and warning them that though they think they are rich, they are in fact wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I want you to imagine the damage that would be wreaked if these letters went to the wrong church. Imagine if those in Philadelphia, who had endured patiently, though they had little strength, were told that they were wretched and pitiful, that they were lukewarm in their faith and were about to be spewed out of Christ's mouth. Imagine if Laodicea had been told they had been faithful, that Christ was going to withhold from them the hour of trial because of their endurance. Philadelphia would likely be crushed, confused, possibly deterred from their faith, and Laodicea would continue in their sin, perhaps worsen, and certainly continue to be useless to the Lord, ineffective in ministry, more like the Pharisees than the apostles. Because each church had not received the message intended for them, their spiritual lives would likely falter and either end in death at worst or at best a disappointing reward in heaven. In much the same way, we err greatly when we hear a message from a church that is not ours, intended for the audience of that church, assume it is for us, and criticize it because it doesn't apply. Because it would, in our spiritual lives, result in death or disappointing reward. This can even happen in our own church if the local body there is large enough. A message meant by God to reach people you don't know within the congregation does not apply to you. And this is okay. If you're listening to a pastor and your conscience stirs within you to say, I can't follow this teaching, it seems wrong, it probably is. Much like the churches in Revelation, following a teaching against your conscience might end in spiritual death or disuse. Your walk is ultimately between you and Christ, and the Holy Spirit is more than capable of leading you into the truths you need to answer your calling and perform the good work God has prepared in advance for you to do. So when your conscience stirs, pay attention. If it stirs toward love and good deeds, the message is for you, and you would do well to heed it. If it stirs toward laziness, apathy, trust in self rather than in God, do not heed it. You may do yourself irreparable harm in doing so, and you will have no one to blame but yourself. This does not mean you should slander the pastor or the teaching necessarily. There's much more we can get into that we don't have time for. There are certainly instances where we must speak up to denounce heresies within certain teachings. But may I caution you to wait until God has made abundantly clear that this is your work to accomplish and not assume that just because you disagree, it is time to speak up. Go to him in prayer, and if your spirit continues to stir, not only in opposition to a heresy, but even further into speaking the truth aloud, then do so with respect and love for those who may be led astray. We're going to talk more about this topic in a couple weeks, but for now, let's turn to the writing portion. There are a multitude of ways to tell a story. Different viewpoints, different tenses, present tense, past tense, and God forbid future tense. Some writers out there will shy away from romantic elements. Others will dive into the deep end of lustful emotion. Perhaps you want a happy ending or maybe you want a heart-wrenching ending for impact. You may have multiple main characters or just one. Your message may be about hope, love, anger, or fear. It may plumb the depths of the human psyche or it may not make it past the makeup. Similar to the attitudes I see in the church sometimes, what annoys me in the writing and reading community are those who think their type of story is the best one, is the most pure form of the craft, the one to strive after, and anyone who doesn't is settling for less, lazy, or only concerned with popularity and not the betterment of mankind. 
This happens especially between so-called literary fiction and genre fiction, but you'll see evidence of it everywhere. Among genres, romance probably holds the least prestige of all. Within genres, Brave New World likely holds higher regard within sci-fi than Star Trek, at least by the intelligentsia. As far as pure fandom, of course, Star Trek certainly holds that cup, perhaps jockeying for rights only against Star Wars. That this is a silly sentiment is easily proven. Do you know anyone who brings lasagna to the theater, or anyone who serves popcorn as the main dish on Thanksgiving Day. If you do, you still probably think they're weird. And if you're the one who does either of these yourself, I hope you recognize that such behavior is atypical, even if you justify it to yourself. And yet those who cast aside some stories or whole genres are ostentatiously uncovering their steaming plate of lasagna in the theater and scorning those who eat popcorn. Just as we should not only eat popcorn or only eat lasagna, so too it should not seem strange to read different books at different times. Reading can be a distraction or relaxation, as well as an opportunity to grow ourselves and our understanding. Perhaps wading through a thick treatise on war and its opposition is relaxing to you. That's fine. Enjoy it. Maybe you don't want the suspense of wondering if the love interest will be together in the end. And as a writer, you don't need to feel like you have to provide one type of experience for your readers because it's judged to be quote-unquote better than others or more wholesome than others. As we talked about last week, the Bible contains nearly every genre that today's fiction does, and God used all of it appropriately to teach what was necessary. And your story can do the same. Just like last week, we can find multiple examples of every kind of story from Scripture. The underdog story is told in David and Goliath, or Joshua, or even the book of Acts. If you want a heist story, Rachel stole her father's idols and hid them in Genesis. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, and David's mighty men snuck out and stole some water. If you're looking for strong female protagonists, Ruth and Esther, plus some short stories in Judges and in 2 Kings 22. If you're looking for a tragedy, the entire progress of the Israelites from Judges to the Prophets which is truly the human story captured in the history of one people. And you could also look at David's and Solomon's story for sure. These are the stories that cross genres. So no matter what you write, fantasy, romance, literary, thriller, you still have to decide what kind of story you're going to tell. Let's remember what we talked about in week one, establishing for yourself what it is you're trying to say. It's going to have ramifications during every part of the writing process. If you're trying to tell a story of hope, a tragic arc likely will not work. If you're seeking to develop some philosophical or theological theme, a heist story may not be your best vehicle. Most people reading these are just looking for entertainment. As we also discussed, there will inherently be some philosophical or theological themes because you as a writer have philosophical and theological beliefs that will work their way in without you even trying. But this may not be the overriding goal of your book. Or if it is, you need to do it with intention and understand the hurdles you'll need to clear to still tell the story well. Whatever story you're trying to tell, you can learn a lot by reading stories from multiple authors who are writing that same story. First, it will help you avoid accidentally telling the same story. It's okay to have similarities, don't let that deter you. But if someone can just as easily read another book by an established author and glean much the same things out of it, then you'll have an uphill struggle convincing them to read yours instead. Second, it will help you see what works and what doesn't keeping in mind again that established authors can get away with more than you can as a new author. But as you continue to read, if you notice that certain themes are never addressed, or that certain themes are only addressed lightly, it may be that doing otherwise will hurt your story rather than help it. It could be you found a niche, certainly, and this is why a good critique group is so important. And this is why I started reading mystery stories as I was writing book three of my own series. I had no experience writing mystery, and when I had read such stories when I was younger, I wasn't paying much attention to the story itself or the structure of it. I was just reading to enjoy it. Now that I was writing it, understanding what I do now about story structure and the structure of mysteries, 
I was able to approach these books with a more critical eye and apply what I was seeing to my own book. And by the way, TV shows and movies are great for this practice as well. It helps to be able to take in a whole lot of stories in a short amount of time to start to see the similarities in the structure. Obviously, you'll still need to read books to understand how the medium is different and to better pace your book to last more than half an hour or an hour or whatever. But the sequence of events is often very similar, and this you can pick up quickly from visual media. However it is you go about it, remember the key point from this week. Different stories reach different people. As a Christian and as a writer, to tell your story well, you'll need to define your audience, learn what it is they need to grow as a Christian and a human being, and keep to the story that will help them do that. I hope this has been helpful. If you have any questions about anything, feel free to contact me on my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash danieldideck.author or on Twitter at Daniel Didek. Join me again next week as we look at our different gifts as Christians and where we fit on the writing spectrum between plotter and pantser and definitions of what a plotter and a pantser is. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.